Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, we discuss new reports that Americans are finally eating less. Did focus a little bit more on children in terms of the effects and how actually the positive benefits of, of working with children and working with the adults to help the children. Plus, an overview of bipolar disorder. But they don't have the other manic symptoms. So in my practice, there's a lot of people that come to me saying they were diagnosed as bipolar, but as you get to know them, they really have mood swings from their personality. And the causes and treatments for uterine bleeding, what you need to know. So you've eliminated pregnancy, you've gotten their history, and then you do your physical exam, which is equally as important as any test you can possibly do. We'll get some expert advice and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we get an update on bipolar disorder and what it really means to have this condition. And we'll examine abnormal uterine bleeding, what you need to know and to do about it. But first, What's behind the numbers pointing to the surprising fact that Americans are actually eating less? Well, after decades of worsening diets and sharp increases in obesity, American habits have begun changing for the better. And the number of calories the typical American adult and the average American child consume are declining. We'll hear with more on this encouraging news is Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian for Upstate Medical University. Thanks for coming in, Maureen. Thanks for having me. So this is kind of shocking to me. Americans are actually eating less. Tell us more about that. That's what this is saying. So our, our thing is we are happy as dietitians that maybe the message is finally getting out to people and it's, um, you know, hitting the hitting your head and saying, hey, eat your vegetables, maybe watch what you're doing, doing these things. Um, so but it's is, encouraging. Where is this data coming from? I, I read somewhere that I guess they've been tracking They've been statistics. tracking this, yes. They've been tracking this for a long time in terms of seeing. Um, and what it what they're doing is looking at different um, all different types of populations, not just centering on like one little um, amount and one little population. So they've been looking at lots of different things in terms of is, is a message actually coming coming across to Americans. And we are saying, seeing that slowly, yes, we're seeing a decline in this. I saw that almost a 9% decline. Mm -hmm. in, and they said that for both adults and for and children. For children. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I guess are all when you said they're, they're looking at all kind of groups, is this cutting across all demographics As, and geographic regions? Yes. From what I understand of this, that's what they're looking at. That's what they've been looking at. So high, low income, Come, basically mm -hmm. no matter what. And, and I guess I noticed something that um, it said that there's, it was more so in groups that had children li living with them. Yes, they tended to um, focus, it did focus a little bit more on children in terms of the effects and how actually the positive benefits of, of working with children and working with the adults to help the children. Well, but how has all this impacted on, you know, you know, all that's been in the news in terms of health in the last decade, I think, at least, has been this idea of the growing rate of obesity and all the subsequent health problems that come from it, like diabetes and heart mm -hmm. conditions and all of that. So how do you think this has begun to impact, is impacting? I mean, well... I guess my concern is um, I hope it's impacting. I'd like to see it. Um, I'm, I see that there's probably more concern in terms of the diabetes population, that we're seeing the effect of that in terms of the weight, overweight, obesity factors. Um, and I know we just had a recent study coming out with Excellus that was a concern to me that we're seeing more people in central New York. So a local study. Local study. Um, they're seeing them more overweight or obese we're seeing that, and that is related to all the medical issues in terms of it. So when I saw this article and then I heard the other in terms of the research, I, I'm, I'm concerned. So are we seeing it? I hope so. Um, are we seeing it locally? Maybe not as well. Did you have a statistic in there, like two-thirds or something? It was um, two out of three in terms of Central New Yorkers were 
that's how they were classified as either overweight, overweight or, or obese. Mm -hmm. That's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking. So this isn't really truly a turning point, at least not locally, but probably for the country at large. But it sounds like it's the first time that actually it's stable. It's stable. It's yes. not continuing to increase. And there has been a little drop, especially among the youngest children I saw. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? You mentioned before that you think somehow these messages are getting through. What do you think some of the pressures are or the positive messages in terms of people consuming less calories? Well, I think the positive message we're trying to get to people is saying in terms of let's let's look at what's out there that you can eat and maybe not go so much in terms of the negative, like don't eat this, don't eat this, and saying eat more fruit, eat more vegetables. Um, fill up on cabbage. Fill up on, yeah. <laughs> eat that local food. And then the education, I think, that's behind it in terms of, okay, we're promoting local markets, but how do you use those local foods in terms of how do you take that? How do you teach someone to roast Brussels sprouts or winter squash when they've never ever heard of those kinds of things. Um, I think we're nor, educating them. May I also interject, nor sure. have in, in many populations or areas have had, had access to some of that fresh, those fresh fruits and vegetables. Right. And I think that's becoming a, an increasing concern and maybe more efforts are being made to make those kinds of things available through farm stands and what have you right. to some of the inner city populations, people who might not have had access who to those not. foods. Yeah. But even showing people some, a basic thing is like I have clients who are concerned about canned goods. Um, well, now there's a big education in terms of if you're rinsing your canned goods and you get rid of the water, you're helping decrease the sodium. So in terms of availability, cost, um, finances, those are a great product. So I tend to want to show clients and say, there's nothing wrong with a canned product. Use this. You can use this in your soups, your stews, your casseroles. But so again, that's an education piece because I think for a while people were scared, like, oh, I heard they're really high in salt. Well, they can be, but you can also reduce them. You can reduce the sodium. So and economically wonderful product and how there. about frozen fruits frozen and vegetables same way same way i i like to educate clients in terms of because i think everyone has the fresh and i love fresh but with today's society and our fast-paced society you might buy that head of cauliflower and you don't have time to fix it so then you just look and did you just waste three or four dollars on that so why not go a big bag of frozen poly cauliflower or broccoli you can cook it. It's Boom. already prepped it's already for you. It's already prepped for you. It's already <laughs> cut. You can do it when you want it. We have microwaves. You can just do it on the stovetop. It's five, eight minutes. You've got a great And nutritionally, product. it's as nutritionally good a product. Just as sent, yeah. Oh, sometimes even better because they're taking it from the field. They're doing that flash frozen. We're getting it from the field, in the truck, here, there. When you go to the local, yes, you know. But that's where some people, it's that education in terms of, I have to have fresh. It's like, no, you can have other great products and still get your good nutrition, especially from the vegetables is what I like to promote it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with registered dietitian Maureen Franklin, and we're talking about the decline in calorie consumption for Americans today, but we're also talking about we're not so sure if that's affecting <laughs> the actual rates of obesity. Um, one other factor that seems to have made a difference is this kind of the whole notion of soft drinks. I mean, people have started, it's kind of been this anti-soda campaign yes. because I think they've looked at, at um, soft drinks as being a real source of unwanted or unnecessary or non-nutritional calories. Oh, definitely, yes. So t tell us about what you know what's going on there. Well, I think, again, the evidence in the literature is saying, it, I look at portions. It's gone from 8 ounces to 24 to 32 ounces. Supersize Supersizing. Supersizing. People not aware of that. So I think the message has got out in terms of this is an extra source of extra calories, extra sugar that do you need? No, you'd be better off eating an apple. So I think the response seems to have been from the companies, oh, we'll do a new marketing. So we'll tell people we're going with natural sugar. We're going with cane sugar. It's still sugar. It's still a carbohydrate. It's still a calorie source. So I think because of the soda companies saw the decrease in terms of their sales, now they're looking for another way or to promote that. Or they're making you know, sweetened teas or other things. That's so they're right. Moving it's away not from just always sodas there's a lot of sweetened beverage out there that people don't think and that's the thing it's it's not just fruit juice is it fruit punch is it a fruit drink is it a fruit beverage the minute you hear drink beverage punch you've got to know there's added sugars it's, it's not it really juice right if it's not <laughs> apple juice and you look on the label and it says 100 percent apple juice you're going to have a little apple juice and then you're probably going to have some corn syrup and then you're going to have other added sugars and that i think is the key looking at where are those added sugars coming from and do you need them in your diet and some cities have actually gone as far as i mean i know there was a big to do about this when Bloomberg suggested it for New York City mm -hmm. to tax 
um, the, the, the super-sized drinks right. and stuff. But I think some cities have actually done that. I think California, somewhere in Berkeley, California, mm -hmm. they're actually taxing sugar-sweetened yes. beverages. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a brand-new thing. And, again, um, I look at that. I think it's important for people to be educated, and I don't think that's it's something that we should say you should never have soda. Again, I think it comes to people's choices in terms of it. Yeah. But to me, it's education piece. Do you really need that soda once in a while? Or you know, a lot of clients might be using soda three, four cans a day. So you need to look at what are you doing personally in terms of that. And again, wouldn't you rather get your nutrition from an apple or a peach or a vegetable? That's what so my the point. bottom line here is that even though this looks good, it's it's somewhat promising news. But I don't think yes. we should we should just kind of you know feel like we're out of the yeah. out of the woods at this right. point. I think we still have to do the push. I think that education piece. I think the more people hear a positive message, that yes, things are changing. You're doing the right things instead of all the negative. And I think that's what happens. People look at it as a diet. They look at I can't have this. I can't have that. They always look at the negative. So to me, it's more. Have that. You can have that. You can have those fruits. You can have those vegetables. Okay, if you want a dessert, you can have a dessert. Let's just look at the size of it. Look at your portions, those kinds of things. How frequently. So, the whole idea is moderation. Right. But I, I, the golden I agree. rule. It's this is encouraging news. Is it that we should stop? No, never. I think we always have to keep that education piece because I think the more people hear it, the more it will sink in and hopefully it'll keep with those good changes. With all that in mind, I'm going to take a little turn to what, you know, with the school year kind of, um, we're embarking on a whole new school year. What tips might you have for the parents who are, you know, so caught up with their kids after school activities, people are running from this to that. You alluded to that earlier. We're such an on the run, you know, society. And too often dinner gets displaced by, you know, soccer practice. Yes. And uh, we're eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the car mm -hmm. on the way, or, uh, or we stop at McDonald's right. <laughs> on the way. So w what are some of your tips in a little bit of time we have? As far as how best, how can families really cope with that that kind of pressure? Well, I like families to look at what's a quick, easy meal that you can put together quickly that your family likes, all right? Um, it's all got to do with planning, all right? If you are making, thinking that you have to do this wonderful baked chicken, uh, baked potato type meal, and that doesn't fit in your schedule, then on the weekend, you cook up a lot of chicken. You do some pre-prep, so then you can say, oh, good, we can have a quick, cold chicken sandwich. Boom, we're out the door. We have an apple. We got some carrot sticks. We're good to go. A crock pot now, perfect time of the weather in terms of making chili, making soups, those kinds of things. Quick, easy, go. And I think that's why people tend to go to the fast food is because it is quick and easy because they haven't done the pre-planning. You've got to do some work, but the benefit will be so great. You know, go and buy that frozen vegetables and then make up a big batch and then throw some tomatoes in and make some soup and add some hamburger and make your own hamburger soup, those kinds of things. Do quick, easy things. Don't think you have to do the gourmet. French toast. I love French toast for, for dinner. French toast, applesauce. You've got a great meal. Glass of milk. You're good to go. And those can be portable. Some That's of the things right. you described, I mean, soup in a mug or, um, you right. know, even chili in even a mug chili. Quick, or a sandwich. Not that, you know, we, we don't want people to always eat and go, but we know that's what happens to people. So instead of grabbing that 99-cent burger, make your own chicken sandwich. Make your own chicken salad sandwich and have that. Make, a chick make it with a wrap and wrap it up in a, in a red pepper. Portable, easy to go. Um, do some quinoa, those kinds of things. So the bottom line here really is it's, it requires a little bit of forethought, but if you get into a, a habit and you plan, yes. and as you said, the weekends on a Sunday afternoon or, or even Sunday evening, mm -hmm. if you can get if you can cook up a certain amount of food right. and get your plan your meals, knowing you're going to have practice a couple of nights a That's week right. or something, and get your kids involved, find out what they like. If you're cooking something that they don't like, well, then you just wasted your time because no one's going to eat that. So it's like, what do you like? You know, find a way to sneak in a little carrots if they don't like carrots. Put it in a stew or a soup or a casserole, or shred it up. Um, put some pumpkin right now. You can add it to soups. You can add it to chili. You're you're just in. It, taking that good nutrition and sneaking it in and not letting them know sometimes but always involve your kids because the more they get involved it goes back to that whole education piece the more we get our kids involved the more they're going to get excited and the more we do education with kids they also bring it home to their parents like oh mom and dad did you know we could do this so um, there's a great site the USDA what's cooking one of my favorite sites for quick easy recipes based on the my plate you can go up and look and say I want something for stews and casseroles wonderful wonderful site 
we will definitely put a link to on our website to that site. That sounds really great. It's excellent. One other point I want to make, I think, is that people need to also realize that food doesn't have to be hot or cold. It can be room temperature, okay. as long as it's safely, you right. know, it hasn't yes. been sitting yes. out all day. <laughs> right. But so that kind of thing also mm -hmm. maybe frees you up so that you have you make chicken tenders and you may be able to serve them at room temperature right. in the car on the way on to the, the game. Way. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate your coming in. It's always a pleasure to listen to what you have, your words of wisdom, your pearls of wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. My guest has been Maureen Franklin, registered dietitian at Upstate Medical University. Bipolar disorder, what it really means to have this condition. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Bipolar disorder affects almost 6 million adult Americans and is the sixth cause of disability in the world, with one in five of these patients committing suicide. Well, here with more on this powerful disease and what can be done to treat it is Dr. Tom Schwartz, professor of psychiatry and the vice chairman in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for coming in. Great. Thanks for having me. So bipolar disorder, formerly known as manic depression, is it on the rise or is it that we just seem to know more about it and perhaps are more uh, are earlier at diagnosing it? Well, I think the classic form of uh, bipolar disorder that you probably see the most on TV and movies and the papers, that's held pretty static at about 1%, so one out of 100. I do think the milder forms we're detecting, diagnosing, so it may appear like it's on the rise. We may just be better at finding it and treating it. So what? let's help us understand when you say the classic one or the, the standard form. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What is, what, are, what is the definition of bipolar disorder? So I, I think bipolarity means you can be on two sides of the spectrum. Uh, classically, we can identify people who are depressed. They're sad, they're amotivated, they lose interest and enjoyment in things, their energy's low, so, sometimes they're suicidal. That's, those are the classic symptoms of major depressive disorder. And, and that would be one pole, one half of bipolarity. Now, to make the diagnosis, you don't have to have depression, but a majority of people uh, who are bipolar will. The more hallmark side is the mood elevation. People are extra happy, hyper, energetic. They don't need sleep and they wake up refreshed. They're, they get a lot of accomplished in, in a small amount of time. And that really is sustained over several days or more for most people. And it's clearly a change in, in people's personality. So the key is you can be mood elevated, you know, really excited, really happy. And it's you're a different person. And everybody around you will notice that. And the key here is I would say at least seven days. It's not just a mood swing because something good happened to you, like you won $500 in a lottery scratch off. I mean, this is you're high and happy for no good reason. My patients will actually say it's very similar to like doing cocaine or speed or too much coffee without those. You're, it's a kind of more of a natural high for no good reason. And it just gets severe and, and interferes with your life would be the other part. Do you also see things in that manic phase like grandiosity and maybe a, a lack of reality check? Mm -hmm. I think it can get to be that severe in any illness, any disease, whether it's diabetes, blood pressure, or bipolar disorder. You have milder versions, and you have the more severe, kind of more detrimental versions. Yeah, I think people can look schizophrenic, where they have delusions, they're paranoid, they're grandiose, maybe they think they have special powers. Uh, and you do see that kind of thing on TV more often. That's the more severe end of the disorder. And I read somewhere that people can do things like have spending sprees, mm -hmm. you know, again, this kind of loss of check of reality. Yeah, I think where the disorder gets dangerous is that kind of uh, grandiose, I'm invincible, and if you don't have 
$5,000, people go and spend it. Uh, they'll max out their credit cards. They'll have to file bankruptcy. They feel they can drive their you know, kind of little economy car 180 miles an hour and not have to do stop signs. It's that level of I'm invincible. Uh, we see people um, start having sexual encounters and get uh, sexually transmitted diseases because I'm invincible. Uh, so people do make bad decisions, and, and that is a level when it's delusional. It is a psychotic process like schizophrenia, and people really aren't aware of what they're doing, which, which makes this illness tough sometimes. So who generally is most at risk for this? I mean, is there a gender bias of any kind, or what, what do we see? In the, the classic, what we call bipolar type 1, that's the classic textbook manic depression. It's about a 1% illness again, and it's an equal opportunity, men versus women. It doesn't matter what your gender is. I would say there's a you know 50 to 80% genetic component. If this runs rampant in your family, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, uh, you certainly can inherit the genes or the genetics like any other disorder. And I think that you know lends to it as well. And sometimes it just happens for no good reason. That's just the way it is. So what is the natural course of events? I mean, what's the age of onset? When do you first start seeing this kind of pattern emerge? I mean, do you start seeing it very early in the life of a child, for example, or does it happen generally in adulthood? I think when I trained 15, 16 years ago, we were told the, the bipolar disorder starts maybe in the late 20s, and that's when you see the manias. If you, it, It's kind of been reconfigured now. Many people develop anxiety and depression in their late teens, and they don't have that first manic episode maybe till their mid to late 20s. So the disorder, in my mind, probably starts in your teens, but you can't tell yet. It looks like depression or anxiety until later. So if you think of it, it's probably brewing from your late teenage years. And uh, again, then the first time you have a manic type episode, one of those mood elevated episodes, now you have the disorder. I, I do think we've made some strides. There certainly are some children and teenagers that clearly go through those manias and hi uh, hyper spells, but it's harder to diagnose. Kids do have more mood swings. They're, they're not grown-ups. They're harder to ask these yes or no questions and, and make a definitive diagnosis. So there is some early onset bipolar, but it, but it's I think it's harder to detect. But do you ever see mania in the absence of depression? I guess that's the question. Because yeah. what I'm gathering from what you're yeah. saying is that the hallmark of this bipolarity mm -hmm. is the mania. Yeah. But my question is, is there, a, and clearly the mm -hmm. depression is can exist yeah. independently because yeah. we know there's depressive disorder. So. Yeah, so some interesting facts. I would say 10% of bipolar patients are ones that never have depression. They only get the manias. And the other kind of fact is it's actually the depressions. Um, in general, bipolar patients will spend more time depressed than they ever do manic. The manic episodes are destructive, robust, easy to detect, and, and they do hurt you your life, you know, you end up in a psychiatric hospital, in a bankruptcy court, in jail for some of the impulsive behaviors. But it's the depression you have more times than not that nickel and dimes you with disability, can't hold a job. And it maybe the depression is there for eight months, the mania is there for two weeks. So the burden of illness is actually more in the depressed state, uh, which, which again, I think you have to be good at treating that and the high part as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with psychiatrist Dr. Tom Schwartz, and we're talking about bipolar disorder. So how do we know? I mean, we've been just talking about, um, you know, the different hallmarks and the different symptomatology that you find. How do you actually diagnose it? I mean, is it a diagnosis? There's no blood tests these days or brain images that can tell you. Right. I don't think we're at the point where we can do a, a brain image or a genetic test or a blood test yet. I, I think eventually we get there. But for now, it really is interviewing a patient, talking to friends and family, getting a whole history. And we tend to do things in psychiatry with what I'll call the laundry list approach. There's a list of symptoms you look for. If you meet enough of those symptoms and it interferes with your life, you, you now have a disorder. So we would look for patients to gradually go into a mania spell. It's seven days or more. And in my experience, it's usually a few weeks or more. And we look for increases in distractibility, racing or rapid thoughts, racing or rapid speech. We look for that grandiosity that we spoke of. Uh, people have these uh, hyperactivity spells where they can actually get a lot done. And uh, they don't need sleep. They wake up refreshed. Um, their personality really changes. And of those several symptoms, we'd like to see you know, four or five of them. 
And if it's severe enough and interfering with your life, now you have a, a treatable condition. So what diseases could be mistaken for bi bipolarity? Because there was some allusion to the fact that maybe we're either under or over-diagnosing it. Yeah, like most things in psychiatry, I think there's a fair amount of people we fail to diagnose, and when we diagnose them, we under-treat them. The doses of the medicines or psychotherapy are too low. So there's one aspect of we still need to do a better job. And then sometimes we over-diagnose, and we give somebody the wrong diagnosis, and that's equally bad, and we're over-medicating or wrongfully medicating folks too. The bipolar um, dilemma is when somebody comes into your office with mood swings, so what are mood swings? So as I mentioned, being bipolar means you need a sustained mania, mood-elevated, extra-happy event. and At least one of those events. Yeah, and, and several days. And so if somebody comes in with a day of a mood swing, you have to decide, is it because something good happened to you? Uh, sometimes people are on drugs, you know, cocaine, crystal meth. Um, I've seen people on too much coffee sometimes look a little bit towards the milder end. So I think drug abuse, drug intoxication is one of the key things. The other thing is, frankly, personality. And we all have different personalities. Uh, some people are robots and have very little emotions. If you like that analogy, they can be happy, sad, and you can't really tell. And other people have way too many emotions, and they're angry one minute and yelling, they're sad and crying the next, they're grandiose and full of themselves the following hour or Love, day. Lability, yeah. change. And that's a personality style, and sometimes that's called borderline personality, histrionic personality. People with narcissism, narcissistic personality, they're naturally kind of grandiose, but they don't have the other manic symptoms. So in my practice, there's a lot of people that come to me saying they were diagnosed as bipolar, but as you get to know them, they really have mood swings from their personality. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and it's the first time I've actually heard someone say that. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that it's um, until we really understand some of these things in terms of the neurochemistry and what really creates these kinds of disease entities in human beings, there's got to be a very, very, almost like a continuum that that we're making an, uh, we're making kind of an arbitrary statement, this is a disease. Yeah. But there's just so much variety in the way the human being yeah. can function. Yeah, I think so. And, and what's critical in, I think, making a diagnosis, particularly in, in bipolar disorder, is if you can get permission to meet with family members, spouses, kids, parents, bosses, clergy member. Again, most people don't want to disclose their, their mental health issues, but it is a tricky diagnosis. And what makes it even harder is when people are manic, they actually tend not to remember. So they can spend all their money, get in trouble, and, and it, the tough part of the illness is they don't remember. You can be interviewing somebody, asking all these perfect questions to make a perfect diagnosis, and they look at you and say, no, that's never happened to me. Wow. But if their spouse is sitting next to them, the spouse will be nodding their heads and saying, no, that's happened three times. And I don't think you know the patients are lying. I, it, it's unfortunately an illness of poor insight. Mm. The other place where I do think patients will not want to admit that they've had manic or what we call hypomanic episodes, which are a little less severe, is they feel good. When you've been depressed for eight months and you elevate into a semi-good or above-good mood, some people actually don't want to tell you because they don't want that taken away. So it's very easy to make a, a misdiagnosis. It's a tough illness. I want to get to treatment. Um, mm -hmm. What I know that medications are on the forefront. Mm -hmm. Let's just do a quick overview. What are the kinds of medications that you find most effective? So for treating mania, the high spells, there really is not a psychotherapy that can talk somebody down. You will have to use medications. Lithium is the classic. Um, Divalproex is an epilepsy medicine, which is also a classic. We use that to lower mania. In many of our schizophrenia medicines, we call them the, the antipsychotics, the, um, the atypical antipsychotics. There's 10 or 11 of them. Half of them are approved for stopping mania. So mania is almost always um, uh, a treatment with a medication. The depressed half, uh, psychotherapy works great. You may not need medications for that. Outside of that, the difficulty with medications are they can trigger more manias. So we try to avoid the more classic antidepressants. And, and sometimes we the schizophrenia medicines, again, I'd say three or four of them are approved for bipolar depression. They can stop the mania. They can stop the depression maybe in one pill. 
So they sound like big league schizophrenia medicines, but they are effective for mania, schizophrenia, depression, etc. They And again, because they work, mm -hmm. we obviously need to use them, but yeah. it would be so interesting if someday in our lifetimes we have an, a clearer understanding of how it is they work and yeah. what it is they're doing. Absolutely. And I think the other treatment is holding a schedule. Don't get sleep deprived. Don't pull an all-nighter. Don't drink extra caffeine. Don't do drugs. You don't want to do things that trigger the next mania. So I think there are um, supportive and lifestyle things that actually can minimize some of your, your mania spells too. And consistency of care, I would think you would really need to remain under the care of somebody like yourself who really mm -hmm. can help yeah. monitor and keep you kind of mm -hmm. Absolutely, stable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, very interesting, very enlightening, and very hopeful, I think. So these people really can function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, there's a spectrum, but again, stay in treatment. People do better and better over time, and, and, and that's the key to this disorder is to, to try to stop it. Very, very helpful and very interesting, and, and thanks so much for coming in and sharing your expertise with us. My guest has been Dr. Tom Schwartz, professor of psychiatry and the vice chairman in the Department of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Nephrologist Dr. Stephen Knoll, an associate professor of medicine and internal medicine doctor, talks to us about what to do when a kidney stone attacks. So if you uh, think that you're having a kidney stone, which may be difficult at first to, to figure out because it can uh, present with just maybe some nausea, maybe some vague discomfort in your belly, but most of the time, you'll know because you get tremendous back pain, usually in the flank area, usually with some burning when you urinate and maybe some blood in the urine. If you get any kind of symptoms like that, generally you're going to want to contact your regular doctor. If you can't be seen right away, then you're going to want to go to an urgent care or emergency room because it generally is going to require emergent attention. Uh, when you're seen, you can expect that you'll probably have some x-rays and some scans, uh, some other scanning done and some blood tests. And uh, generally, they will give you a lot of fluid to see if they can perhaps uh, move the stone to, so you can hopefully pass it. They'll give you, obviously, some pain medications as well. They may even give you a strainer uh, so that if you leave the emergency room in your home, you can actually strain the urine because it's very important if you have a stone to get it analyzed by the doctors thereafter. Uh, once you've had a stone, then it's going to be very important that you're followed up either by a urologist or a nephrologist for further management because if you've had one stone, the likelihood is you'll have another. The most important uh, measure to uh, put into place for prevention is you have to drink. And my recommendation is you should drink an eight ounce cup of water or perhaps even squeezing lemon into your water every hour while you're awake. Uh, this will go a very long way to preventing uh, future stone attacks. Why is it important to analyze the kind of stone that it is? because uh, knowing the kind of stone will help to really tailor the therapy that's needed in case medications are required. Coming up next, abnormal uterine bleeding. What does it mean and what do you need to know? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, if you're a woman in your childbearing years, you're familiar with your regular monthly menstrual bleeding. But when do you know if this is abnormal or a sign of something of concern? Well, here with some answers is Dr. Howard Weinstein, professor of obstetrics and gynecology and the division chair of OBGYN at Upstate's community campus. Welcome, Dr. Weinstein. Thanks Thank you. for coming in. Let's begin by defining what we mean when we say abnormal uterine bleeding. What is that? Well, generally, you have to define normal. And of course, there is no basic normal. Everyone is different. Um, I have people who come into the office and say, I'm hemorrhaging, and you examine them, it's barely any bleeding. Then you get another woman who comes into the office and says, I'm having my normal period, it's no big deal, 
and she's bleeding all over the place. And that's the big problem in defining normalcy. So it's a very individualized situation that you're trying to define. Abnormal would be abnormal duration, abnormal quantity, or an abnormal schedule of bleeding. So generally, we have some criteria for normal. Uh, basically, every 21 to 35 days would be a normal menstrual cycle. Most of us have expanded that from 21 to 42 days because there's always going to be some irregularity. They're generally regular. They come at a regular interval, and they're regular for the patient. Now, every patient is different. Generally, the period will last for three to seven days. The bleeding quantity is the hardest thing to, to measure. Basically, from a clinical point of view, we say it's from 5 to 80 cc's of blood during the entire course of the period. Generally, that means they're changing a pad or a tampon. Maybe three times a day would be about normal. And then the duration is greater than or equal to five, five days, but clearly doesn't exceed that by very much. What is the difference between when we call abnormal uterine bleeding from abnormal vaginal bleeding? Basically, is there a yeah, basically it's the same. We just have to define it a little better, and that usually comes after you get your history and after you do your examination. Then you can define where the bleeding is coming from. So Generally, it's considered abnormal vaginal or uterine bleeding until you define it and narrow it down a little. In terms of its origin and Where what is actually the from. causation. Correct. So getting to cause, do we know what causes this? Well, the, in 2011, the International Federation of Obstetrics and Gynecology came up with an acronym for defining what causes abnormal bleeding. And they have this mnemonic called palm coin. So the P would be a polyp. A would be a disease called adenomyosis, which is when endometrial tissue from inside the uterus gets into the wall of the uterus, and the uterus just stops working well. L would be lyomyoma or fibroids. M would be a malignancy. Then the coin part, which is spelled differently, it's C-O-I-E-N. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I have no idea. But C would be coagulation disorders. O would be disorders of ovulation. I would be iatrogenic. That means generally you've been treated for something and it's the treatment that's causing the irregular problem or the bleeding. Uh, e would be everything else. And the uh, N would be no obvious cause. Mm. So you, you look at that and you try and judge where this person fits in. But that all goes with how you're going to evaluate them. We're going to get to that in a minute because sure. I want to talk more specifically. But when does this generally occur in the lives of, of, of a woman? Commonly early in the menstrual years. And like the teen years, for example? Teen or early 20s and then later in the... Um, reproductive age life. Like generally, perimenopausal? Yeah, generally 40-something to 50, early 50s. And that's when you get this kind of irregular bleeding. Are there specific, besides your age, which you've just alluded to, are there other risk factors that make you more prone to this kind of problem? Well, obesity, hypertension, uh, diabetes, many other diseases that can feed into this. So, so when should you think to call your doctor? I mean, it sounds to me, as a layperson listening to you, that if something very out of your normal experience occurs, that might be the trigger. But tell I, us I more. agree. But the, the difference is women are very regimented. They know when they're going to get their period pretty well. Even if they're not taking birth control pills, just on a normal, regular cycle, they know when they're going to get their period, they know how long it's going to last, they know how many tampons or pads they're going to use. They're very, very specific. We've had people who come in one month of irregularity in duration and timing and so on, and they have to be seen because they are so specific in their normal, quote, normal cycle. I would say if it goes on for three months that you're out of sync with what your norm is, 
that's the time to consult your physician. So how do you go about diagnosing the problem once the patient comes to you? Well, first you get the history. This is classic medical evaluation. First you get a history. You want to know what medications they're taking. You want to know when it occurs. Try and get them to gauge how heavy it is or how irregular it is. So you always ask, when was your last menstrual period? In the reproductive age group, you've always got to be careful about pregnancy. You never take that for granted, that they can't be pregnant because of X, Y, or Z. Always use that as a guide for the reproductive age group. People who've had tubal ligation or on permanent sterilization of some sort, you have to worry less, but there's always a little bit of a worry no matter what. So you've eliminated pregnancy, you've gotten their history, and then you do your physical exam, which is equally as important as any test you can possibly do. And what you're looking for, you know, you do your regular physical exam, you look inside the vagina, looking at the vagina and see that where the bleeding is coming from. You look at the cervix. Occasionally, it's that pee, the polyp that you see. I mean, it could be a polyp inside the uterus, but generally speaking, if you have this kind of crazy bleeding, it can be a polyp on the cervix, which is any age group is entirely possible. Then you do your physical exam and you manually feel what's going on. And that's one way of diagnosing uh, fibroids, leiomyoma, or adenomyosis, which is a very difficult disease to diagnose and very difficult to deal with. Then you can move on to some testing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with obstetrician-gynecologist Dr. Howard Weinstein. We're talking about abnormal uterine bleeding. So you started saying, then you go on to testing. So what types of tests do you well, do? Well, first test is the same. Of course, you've done a pregnancy test in the reproductive age group because you can't be too secure that they're not pregnant. Then you do a blood count. You want to see how much bleeding they're really doing. Is this person anemic? And it's the same kind of thing you get in a history. If a patient comes to you because their doctor, their family doctor or their internist sent them to you because they're anemic, that might be a good reason why they're anemic if they're bleeding that heavily. Um, you want to do a blood count, and then you want to do some technical studies of ultrasound. Ultrasound is your, your best study unit. They do a transvaginal pelvic ultrasound where they try to actually see what's going on in, Correct. in you, the uterus. Correct. You look inside the uterus with this sonogram, which is not painful and not a problem. You can do it abdominally, but it's not as accurate as a transvaginal ultrasound. Certainly, if the fi if person has fibroids and they're very big, you have to do an abdominal sonogram because the, the sound waves from a vaginal sonogram won't get that high. How about endometrial biopsy? At what point do you make a decision that you have to actually take tissue? I think it depends on the situation. I think you do a sonogram. You see what the cavity of the uterus looks like. You see what the whole body of the uterus looks like. I'm not a big endometrial biopsy fan. It's very uncomfortable, and it doesn't give you all that much information. What I will do, if the endometrium is thickened, in a young person, it can be up to, and you measure it up and down the line, longitudinal measurement, and you're measuring the thickness of the cavity of the uterus. And depend on where in the cycle they are, if, if they're reproductive age, and it should be, oh, up to a centimeter in thickness in a young person who's menstruating. You can do something called a sonohistorogram, which is, generally speaking, the next best step. You have this thickened endometrium that you're dealing with, and what you do is you put a very fine catheter into the uterus, and you inject sterile saline. It's a little bit crampy, but nothing horrible. A little bit of Motrin before the exam is, goes a long, long way. And then you inject the sterile saline, and you watch it with a transvaginal sonogram. And what that does is it inflates the endometrial cavity. And you can see, is there a polyp in there? Is there a fibroid in the cavity? You know, it's location, location, location. You could have fibroids up to the top of your abdomen 
and have no problem with them. And then you can have one fibroid in the cavity of the uterus, and that's causing all the aggravation that people come in with. So what exactly are you, I mean, what's the most concerning thing that you're looking for? I mean, you mentioned in, in the potential diagnoses that cancer could be one of them. Is, is that one of the biggest things you're looking for Always. at that point? If there's a very thickened endometrium and the patient might be a candidate for a cancer of the uterus, such as a lady in the menopause who's bleeding. Now, postmenopausal bleeding is a whole different story. That has to be worked up a lot more completely than just a person is 22 years old and bleeding irregularly. Uh, I think there are reasons for doing endometrial biopsies late in a person's reproductive life or if they have other confounding factors such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and they're bleeding irregularly. Or they skip four or five periods then all of a sudden come in bleeding very heavily then it's worthwhile to even consider an endometrial biopsy. The, the problem with endometrial biopsy is the instrument we use is about two millimeters in thickness. It's on a little suction device so you can take one strip of tissue. But you gotta remember that's one strip of tissue from one part of a 360 degree uterus. So you can do a lovely biopsy and, and still get miss a, it. That's right. You get a small abnormality, but you could be missing something much more serious. I want to get to treatment. I don't want to run out of time. So what do you do to treat this? Well, it depends on where in the reproductive life they are. So that's a critical factor Extremely in terms of... Extremely critical. And why? Explain well, why. Well, because it's easy. Most of the early bleeders, young people, will respond very well to hormonal therapy. Hormonal therapy being oral contraceptives or one of the long-acting contraceptives like Depo-Provera or implants or IUDs. The, and that the, somehow regulates the bleeding. It, it will stop it, basically. You can use birth control pills continually for six months up to a year, and you won't have any bleeding at all. And but then, if you're past the years of wanting to have children... Then you, you have do? to be very careful. If it's something that's safe and there's no cancer or pre-cancer, you can take the patient to the operating room. You can do a DNC, which is scraping out the tissue inside the cavity. You can look inside the uterus without scar, hysteroscopy, and then you can do what we call an endometrial ablation, which is basically a burning and destroying of the inside cavity of the uterus that creates scar tissue and then will either limit the bleeding or make the bleeding go away completely. But there are, the point right now, the bottom line takeaway is that there are many ways to treat this issue. You just need to find out what's causing it and you have the consideration of whether you want to continue to bear children. Right. And the forward. age group too. I mean, the older people, you're not going to do an endometrial ablation. They may need a hysterectomy, which is the ultimate last thing you want to do. Certainly not in a young person. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing this. It's a concern, I'm sure, for many, many women out there. So thanks for sharing all this great information. My guest has been Dr. Howard Weinstein, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate Medical University and the division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate's community campus. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Pam Freeman works in the medical school at SUNY Upstate as a standardized patient, teaching medical students how to acquire the skills of interviewing patients and really listening to their stories. Her poem, Where Does It Hurt?, is a remarkable example of the story within a story. Where does it hurt? Well, since you asked, remember you said, tell me where it hurts. I got thinking about it. You already know the places that show up on the scans and the other places those places gossip with, snickering in their cruel, contorting language of pain. But since you asked, and I got thinking about it, it also hurts in my daughter. Her eyes, the sad sky of this room, and in her little son, who clutches a plastic army man 
and is too young to understand, as we tritely put it, although so am I, if you must know, and I bet you are too. It also hurts, I'm told, in my daughter's resentful ex-husband. Of course, everything seems specifically to take aim at him. His resentments I actually do understand, or at least I get where they're coming from. I always did, and wished I could have warned her there wasn't a thing to be done about them. The world would simply multiply his misery, and she'd keep taking on half. But it wouldn't have made a difference, because love makes you believe you can fix life itself. She wheels her guilt in here and quietly hooks it up, one more machine to supervise me, drawing its own conclusions. Me? I'm past warning anyone at this point. Nobody wants it. And besides, do I look wise or successful in this wrinkled calico tent of a hospital gown, my eyebrows gone hairless, lending an expression of perpetual blank amazement? No, dispensing wisdom is not my place anymore, which leads me to wonder what my place is, if I in fact have one. Pardon all this blah blah, it's the illusion of ego, the lifeline of I am. I mean, right? I am, aren't I? Right. So therefore, I must matter. But what if it's the other way around? And when you cease to matter, you cease to exist. And the language in your body is trying to say, you're excused now. That's where it hurts, since you asked. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. And if you'd like to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thank you.